before it became a static institution characterized by rigid dogma and, and formalities and hierarchy, the church was a movement, like a living organism. Before being a Christian meant sitting in a pew for an hour on Sunday mornings, it was a community of practice, a community known not first as Christians, actually, as a static noun, but as people of the way, a verb, people actively seeking to embody the way of love, the love of God that they had experienced in Jesus. A love, as we hear in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, that extends not merely to those in one's tribe, to those one likes or agrees with or, or even understands, but even to those that we are inclined to see as our enemy. Which is to say, a love that refuses to dehumanize anyone, that refuses to justify violence or, or living conditions for others, that we would refuse to accept for ourselves. In this community ever on the way, everyone was believed to have gifts. As a, Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, everyone has something to offer. And offering oneself, pledging oneself to this movement of love is the very meaning of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. No one gets to sit on the sidelines or stay in their pew. There are no bystanders in life. We are either actively seeking to live in the way of love for us as modeled by Jesus, or we are stuck, complacent. And yet somewhere along the way, many churches became the exact opposite of what the church began as, such that one could be warlike, greedy, racist, and vain. One could be close-minded and violent. One could hoard their wealth, participate in lynchings, oppress workers. One could abuse power and bully others and still sit in their pews on Sunday morning or, or serve in church leadership without an ounce of discomfort in their conscience. Somewhere along the way, many churches began to turn inward and focus more on, on building an institution and preserving themselves, keeping the doors open, rather than on stewarding the love of God, rather than on, on sending people into the world, drawing them into a movement toward wholeness, a movement of healing and hope and love. And as it did, churches, well, they structured themselves in a way that was similarly designed to maintain the past. And this was how people were invited to serve. No real room for innovation. The focus was on continuing what was handed on to us. How can you serve? I'm glad you asked. Well, there's, there's a slate of boards and committees that keep things running. What kind of meetings would you like to attend? Oh, you have an idea for a service project or a small group? Well, okay, but that's the job of this board over here, and you'll have to ask them about to get their permission 
And, and actually, they only meet once a month, which is three weeks from now, their next meeting. And unfortunately, they might decide to take it to council, and they don't meet until three weeks after that. So, I mean, six weeks, we'll get back to you, but it, really, this is the purview of this board. So, I mean, honestly, your best bet is just to join them when, when the elections, the nominations come up next year. If you want to join that board and attend the meetings, then, then maybe you can have a voice and do that thing. Right? It's the board's job. The assumption in this old way of organizing the church is that those on a board, right, they do all the work in a certain area. They do what they choose to do. And if you're not on the board, you don't really have an opportunity to participate fully in, play a role in, in leading those kinds of ministries, which also means that once you're no longer on council or a board or a committee, well, you kind of just fade away, right? What is there left for you to do other than, well, sit in a pew? And just as we sort of outsourced this work of being the church to those serving on boards, outsourced organizing and participating in opportunities to actively live out our faith to serve others, and so on. We, we did a similar thing with pastors. As churches gained the funding capacity to hire full-time clergy, churches, congregants, also began to outsource their faith, their spiritual journeys to them. And so those who are raised up in the church decide to go be pastors. They're sent out to seminary where their faith is deconstructed, challenged, deepened, expanded, reconstructed. They get to ask all the hard, probing questions. We're trained in how to be present with people in difficult circumstances. And then we're sent back into churches thinking that this spiritual journeying, well, well this invitation to being transformed, as the Apostle Paul calls us, in mind and body, this is what we are sent back into churches to help others do only to find all too often as I talk to my colleagues that, that our churches tend to be full of people who aren't actually interested in that journey for themselves. Visit those who are sick, those who are in prison or hurting. Isn't that, isn't that what we pay you for? Read scripture, pray. I mean, that's, isn't that your job description? Listen for how God's spirit might be calling us to live boldly in our hostile and divisive world? How about you just give us a nice little inspirational sermon and then we'll go do the work that we've been doing and keep things moving along. You just, you stay in your place, we'll, we'll do ours. Right, this is in many ways how churches, not, not just speaking about federated in any particular way, but churches in general have been structured right, so that we outsource growing in our faith or living out our values to others. Rather than it being a place that facilitates that journey for each of us. And I'll add that I think this is all too often the case in other areas of our lives. Right? Even in a democratic society, how often do we choose not to actively participate? We'll leave that to others, those people, that's their thing. Or how often we reduce participating to just voting. How often I've seen members of a family outsource the emotional labor or, or understanding 
feelings of initiating processes of forgiveness or repair, of restoring the peace, we, we outsource that to one particular member of the family. Rather than everyone continuing to grow in their capacities, we rely on that one member. And if, if they don't do that work, well, then it just it doesn't happen. And usually then we blame them for not doing the thing because now we don't like how it feels. There's friction. This morning, I invite us to think about how different this vision of church that I'm talking about, this, this vision of church, of, of trans, the transforming journey of life that we're called on, how different that is from what we witness in Scripture, informed by, by the gospel reading and others like it that we have this morning. In our reading from the book of Acts, which again details the immense growth and transformation of this Jesus movement from a, a small monocultural Jewish community to an expansive multicultural one, disrupting the, the power structure of the Roman Empire. In this book of Acts, we hear about how Jesus' followers are led by God's spirit on a path where the destination isn't clear when they start, when they set out. They don't begin with an obvious answer or endpoint. They have to discover where to go next by listening, by acting, and by reflecting and repeating that process over and over. Right? To build on our theme from last week, we, they have to live themselves toward the answer. They discover it bit by bit as they go. Multiple times in our story, they get redirected as seemingly dead ends lead to open doors, just not the open doors that they expected when they set out, right? They, they set out with a plan. They had ideas, but they have to remain open and nimble as, as situations require them to adapt. And isn't that the journey of life? Think about it for yourselves where your own lives have led you, perhaps your own journey to DeKalb, to Sycamore, to Federated, how many of the people and places to whom you, you end up finding a certain spirit calling you, drawing you, inviting you to, to remain, it's not actually where you set out in the first place. It's not what you had really planned on happening in your life. And so too for Paul, right? Paul thinks that God is sending him, directing him to a certain man in Macedonia. Did you catch this? For one particular reason or another. But that man, it turns out, is actually a woman named Lydia. And the real purpose of that journey is only revealed upon meeting her. As the authors of the book Leading Faithful Innovation write, this, this is the kind of journey that characterizes much of what we read about in the early church. The Jesus movement was a group of strangers and friends joined together by God into a community practicing a distinct way of, of life that crossed cultural and geographical boundaries. And that movement was animated by the life-giving, loving energy that we call the Holy Spirit which broke down walls, which bound people together, which freed them to take bold risks in love. 
It was a subversive movement that called into question the predominant stories and structures of their day. This, this is where I believe God is calling us back to. As individuals, as a church, to a way of being in community that that isn't based on outsourcing our faith to others, that isn't based on, on doing it or serving the church for a few years before settling for just being present while someone else goes and does the work. We're boldly and courageously taking risks for love, offering our gifts, our time, our talents, our resources to growing that school of love. It isn't the work of some of us, but all of us. No matter what age or where we are on life's journey. And to that end, I want to close this morning by maybe putting it another way, using this parable that I, I recently heard from the contemporary theologian Brian McLaren. I didn't bring my yoga mat with me, but we're going to pretend that I have a yoga mat here. Because I recently attended my, my fifth yoga class at a new yoga studio in town. And it's been, I mean, it's been really great. The first week, they told us that we all had to go get a mat, which I guess makes sense, right? So we did that, and we came back with our mats the second week. The first week, the instructor talked to us about the meaning of the word yoga. And we all studied that. And then we, they tested us. They gave us a quiz at the end about our ability to define the meaning of yoga, the different kinds of yoga. The second week, we learned about the history of yoga. I, of course, took a lot of notes. I, I gave a, they gave us a quiz at the end. And of course, because I'm a great student, I got 100. I mean, I don't have to tell you that, right? The last couple of weeks, we've been watching videos of people doing yoga. We've seen some of the greatest yoga teachers of all time. It's been amazing. We're learning that whenever we see one of these different postures, we can identify which stance or pose it is, which I'm also, I'll let you know, getting pretty good at. And yesterday, actually, yesterday, we did something really meaningful. We all held up our yoga mats. We talked about why we chose that mat that we did. Why we chose this studio. Of all the other studios out there, why did we choose this studio? And I tell you, after, after that sharing, I felt a lot closer to, to my fellow students. And in the coming weeks, they're going to tell us about the biochemistry of yoga. We're going to learn the different angles, like when you're doing downward dog, I don't even know if I'm doing, you know what I mean, some of you know what I mean. When you're doing downward dog, like what the angle is, the mathematics, I, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm learning so much. I'd love to teach you. I'm basically, I'm basically an expert at yoga now. Here ends my story. <laughs> okay, I'm not an expert at yoga by any means. But the point of this parable, of course, right, is that Knowing all about yoga doesn't really do you any good if you don't actually practice yoga. If we learn all kinds of things about yoga, but we never get on the mat, have we actually learned yoga at all? 
can we really say that we do yoga? What if we form a council to govern our yoga studio nonprofit? If we hold fundraisers to keep the doors of our yoga studio open, and we form committees to mow the grass and maintain the inside of the building, keep it all pretty and nice for people as they come in, are we actually, are we really actually a yoga studio? If we do all of these things in service of the yoga studio, but the only one who practices yoga is maybe that instructor, maybe a couple of others, not during the classes, but outside of that, can it be said that any of us really know anything about yoga at all? I'm guessing you get the point by now, right? It's the same with following Jesus, with our spiritual journeys of transformation, with giving ourselves to the way of love, growing our capacity for love. It's not a bystander sport. It's not a sometimes choice. It's not something we can talk our way to, watch videos our way to, think our way to. It's not something we can fulfill with a meeting. The exciting but difficult invitation before us in this season of stewardship and beyond is to ask each of us for ourselves, what do I have to offer? How can I participate and pledge myself to this bold, risk-taking movement of love? That's the invitation. May it be so. For your healing and flourishing, for the healing and flourishing of all the world. Amen.